Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey folks, what's going on? Uh, I'm Aaron Fryfield. I am your host. And like always, thank you very much for tuning in. I'm pleased you could be here for this week's episode. Um, this is episode 91. We're getting very close to 100. It's kind of frightening. <laughs> anyway, guys, my guest this week is Craig Scott. I've had a bunch of people asking if I can try to bring Craig onto the podcast. So here he is. Uh, Craig is someone who has been trading and investing for pretty much most of his life. First started in school when he participated in a year-long stock picking competition where he did pretty well. Once completing a double major in finance and accounting, Craig spent many years as an auditor and an accountant and later on, the entrepreneur within had him start and grow several businesses doing similar things along the way. As Craig describes his style of trading and investing today, it's a hybrid of fundamentals, momentum, sentiment, and instinct. He uses options for short-term positions, and for mid- to longer-term positions, he uses stocks. Ah, and I should mention Craig's very adamant about the fact that he does not use charts, which, of course, we get into during this episode. Now, we'll also mention uh, there were a few small glitches in the sound quality during our chat Um it's really nothing major though. Please push past it. There's a lot of really good stuff packed into this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. You're listening to episode 91 with Craig Scott. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So let's get into this, Craig. So, I mean, I don't know a great deal about your background in all honesty. I know that you did start investing uh, around 14 or 15 years of age, but I'd love it if you could tell us a bit more about how you got started and what actually got you interested in markets. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I started, um, I think, freshman or, or sophomore year in high school. What actually got me started was my um, my economics professor, teacher, not professor in high school, um, Mrs. Blake. And she tasked us in the very beginning of the year with she was entering us into a stock market contest that was statewide and she was looking for volunteers from the class to kind of lead the project and you know make some stock picks and you know basically stay after school and research and and things of that nature and i really didn't even have any exposure to it um other than you know the fact of you know putting some risky things to work uh appealed to me so i volunteered to lead that um, and, you know, I, I picked like three or four folks that, that wanted to stay after and, and, and we kind of just went from there and we would stay after. And, you know, back then there was no computer. So we would bring newspapers and, you know, with the Wall Street Journal and all the listings of all the different stocks and news stories and, and try to accumulate data um, as, as efficiently as we could. And then, you, you, you know, every, nothing was electronic. So you'd write down your stock picks for the week and you'd send them in via, you know, snail mail. Um, and then you'd see how perform and you'd get results once a month. And it was a year long contest. Um, and I think at the end, we came in like third or fourth in the state out of like, you know, 800 um, schools. So it was great. It was a good experience. That's how I started. Um, and, and, and taking that, um, 
you know, right after that year, I actually started putting real money to use my own money from jobs and, and work and, and, and money I've saved. I asked my mother if I could get involved. And obviously she wasn't really keen on the idea of me putting money that I've worked and saved for to, to use in the stock market. But she said I could start out small and work my way up. Um, so that's what I did. That's really interesting. So why do you think it was that your, your mom wasn't keen on the idea of this? Uh, well, I mean, my mother was always more of the conservative type, you know, stick your money in the bank, buy CDs, um, you know, save for a rainy day uh, kind of uh, mentality, which, um, you know, living with, you know, her mother who came through the depression and stuff, I guess it was, you know, for some was a way of thinking that, you know, you, you always save because disaster can strike, which is kind of funny that, you know, the stock market crash is what, you know, was part of the depression. Um, so I, you know, when I brought up, you know, investing in stocks, I'm sure she, she wasn't, you know, overly joyed, but, you know, I showed her some of the stuff I was working on in high school and that, you know, I, I kind of, um, you know, had a thought process and how I wanted to go attack it and things I was thinking of, um, and, and she agreed to let me start small. She had a very small brokerage account that I think she, you know, inherited and she really didn't do anything with. And she's like, you know, she let me, you know, put some of my money in that. And, and then I started and, and I haven't stopped since. <laughs> oh, good move on her part. So you, you mentioned that you were uh, mostly doing your research by reading articles in the Wall Street Journal and that sort of thing. What sort of things would get you interested in companies back then? Like, what were you actually looking for and researching specifically? Um, like, what were you, what what gave you an incentive to actually buy into a company? So that's funny because it's based. It, it's almost exactly the same thing as as now, and it's what I tell my daughter who's starting to invest and is doing very well in the markets. And 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 I told her what I did. I said, stick with things you know and understand. You stick with things you see that are doing well or, or something, a, a new product that, that you're really interested in and follow up and see, you know, who manufactures it, who's buying it, who's selling it, uh, who are the main customers, um, you know, and, and, you know, so that's the kind of mentality I used. I would see something and think to myself, okay, everybody has one of these, who makes it? Or um, everybody's selling one of these, who's selling it? So and, and that's the mentality I went in when I was, you know, identifying targets of of things I would look to buy early on. And, and that's really carried through um, till today. And, I, and it's something I've even, you know, ingrained in my kids that, you know, who want to invest, you know, you know, which is now, you know, they you know, you know, my daughter's in Starbucks every day. So she bought some Starbucks and she's always buying Nike clothes. So she, you know, Nike and Under Armour. So it's the things that you understand and try to stay away from things if, if they're confusing that you you try to avoid because when when you're confused, um, bad things can happen. Okay, I really like this point, and I'm definitely gonna we're gonna pick up on this in a, in a bit. I want to go into much greater detail on that, but before we get to um, all of that and, and more of the specifics about how you trade today, I'm keen to hear a bit more about your journey. So, you know, when once you did start trading or investing with real money. How did you go? Like, was that any different from how you were performing when you were participating in the uh, the college competition? Uh, well, I can tell you this: I was a lot more nervous <laughs> because uh, you know when when, when and I, and I was a lot more on top of it. Um, you know, I was I was watching the business news all the time. Uh, you know, and I was when I was doing the contest. But you know, when you have skin in the game, you know you, your body temperature goes up a little. Um, and, you know, I caught a break, I guess it was in the mid 80s, maybe 85. Um, I, I, you know, we had an RCA, we all our TVs in our house seemed to be like RCA. So I bought a bunch of stock in RCA, a bunch, you know, relative back then. And, you know, then it got bought out by GE and suddenly my account went up like 200%. And I was like, this is fantastic. And I just, you know, I, I took that and I, I kept my, you know, I kept my philosophy pretty true throughout. So, you know, I took pieces of pieces of my uh, capital and put it in different investments um, throughout high school. And then and then even through college, um, 
I did the same thing. So I was a uh, double major in finance and accounting because one thing I've learned, you know, as I was learning was that you really have to understand, have a really good backbone with accounting to understand companies and markets. So I wanted to, you know, accounting is boring because most people think of, you know, people doing taxes and things of that nature. But I was more of the financial end of, you know, understanding a company's financial statements, where the holes might be, where the strengths might be, and how that could identify a good or a bad investment. Um, and that's what I pursued throughout college. And, and I graduated with a, with, a, with a degree in finance and accounting. So uh, that's pretty much how I, how I, you know, through my undergraduate years, what, you know, and, and I used the money I made to help proliferate spending in my college years because <laughs> it was expensive and, um, you know, I didn't want to put my parents out too much. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. So what did you do post-college? Did you just go full-time trading and investing or did you pick up a couple jobs in the industry? Like where did you go from there? No. So actually what I did was I really wanted to get some exposure to the inner workings of companies. So out of school, I worked and now it's Price Waterhouse Coopers. Back then it was Coopers and Librand. I got a job at a big four accounting firm um, where I obtained my CPA and I worked as a as an auditor and then into the management consulting end of these of, of the firm so i can kind of understand and see how management thought um you know understand the processes into decision making how financial uh statements were constructed uh where some of the red flags might be and i got on some pretty uh significant clients like i was on the j and j audit um you know, and, and AT&T and things of that nature. Um, and, and then as I moved on, I, I was doing some management consulting in the financial sector, you know, um, doesn't, you know, Smith, Barney, Shearson. Um, and I was downtown on Greenwich Street look, working through those um, and really getting understanding on how it tied in between, you know, the, the banks and the companies and financing and, and, you know, a company becoming public and, and how the markets were really structured and, how they how they work. So, you know, that was my first job out of school. Um, and then I moved into the private sector, you know, working in mergers and acquisitions and banking and some private companies um, like NBC and such, where, you know, I was really involved in the, the, the discussions between firms and acquisitions. Um, I worked on the MSNBC joint venture, so I got to sit in a room with Bill Gates and Jack Welch. I mean, I got some real good exposure at a young age to, to business leaders that really, um, you know, were people who influenced, uh, you know, not only the markets, but their companies. And then, you know, and then and, and all the time I was involved in the markets, except when I was a PwC, I was somewhat restricted because of, you know, um, disclosure and things of that nature. I couldn't be, you know, trading in companies that, you know, obviously I was auditing and things of that nature, but it's been pretty steady throughout. Um, and after that, um, you know, we came the late 90s and we'll, we'll get into this. But, you know, I took some, uh, you know, major hits where I basically lost everything. Um, uh, when, when the dot-com bubble crashed and I started a, an executive staffing firm, um, and, uh, that, that did well. We started with, you know, two folks, uh, worked our way up to about 30. And, and then I got back into the markets again, as I was doing that while I was running that firm. And, you know, I started up different companies and, you know, tried to be the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, and and uh, and that's pretty much how the the flow through of my career up up until this point. Okay, so let's break that down a little more. So uh, the you know you, you talked a lot about your kind of your accounting and auditing experience there. Was it easy for you to transfer that knowledge into good performance in the markets? You know what I mean? Like it's it's sort of one thing to understand what's going on, but to actually turn that into actionable information that you can trade off. Was that something that was easy for you to do? Not immediately, no. Uh, it was something that was sort of cultivated as time went on. Uh, you would see uh, how companies would either miss their earnings or, you know, have to have to make an amendment to their financial statements. And, and the 
and the events that may have caused that. So it, it took a while for me to balance the uh, the causality into an investable action. So, uh, you know, I, that had to, you know, come into my 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 prism of view um, to, to, to make that connection. It did take a while, but eventually it, all the pieces started to fit. Um, and then I could con I could look to see, um, where there might be, you know, deer in the headlights kind of look from companies and, 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 you know, give myself a warning or, or see something good that's coming down the pike and, and maybe get involved. Okay. Now you also talked about you took some really big hits, so I'd love it if you could break those down for us and, and give us a bit more insight into what actually happened there. Oh, absolutely. I, I, you know, I could take you through. I mean, you know, everybody likes to talk about their, you know, their glory stories, but you know, it's the it's the it's the hits that actually allow you to become successful. So, you know, I was running a fairly large executive staffing firm. Um, you know, we were doing probably a hundred million in revenue. Um, and, uh, you know, I was taking capital and, and trading it and, you know, I was somewhat distracted and I really couldn't devote my full attention, you know, to the markets. And, you know, you know, the mistake number one is when you, you know, there's, there's a few, you know, takeaways, um, when you have big, big losses, you know, mistake number one is when you get involved without any sort of exit strategy. So when knowing when to sell, or, you know, the FOMO, the fear of missing out. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, you learn through experience, but as that goes on and you're in the heat of the moment, you know, then you, then you buy more of a stock just because it goes down. Um, and then eventually everything blows up, which is what happened in, in the dot com era for me. You know, I would get involved in, you know, a lot of different companies like Telligent and Windstar and Exodus Communications. And, I would just start getting involved, you know, you know, I was starting to get involved in, you know, trading deep active options and, you know, options are great if you can manage it and with the leverage. But, you know, if, if you're not, if you don't have things under control, um, you know, it's been, it's been, you know, cataclysmic pretty, pretty fast. So, yeah, I, I was at a point um, where I had basically nothing left for, for investable capital. Um just because I, uh, it's uh, bad decisions that you know I wasn't be able to focus a hundred percent on 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 the markets and see the undertones of what was happening, uh, and I and I think that was a, a, a obviously a big lesson learned. Yeah, no doubt. And over the years, have you had anyone almost like a, a mentor like figure who has helped you with your your trading, or has it mostly been sort of uh, self acquired knowledge? Unfortunately, yeah, it's been all, it's all been self, you know, taught, uh, deprecate. I don't know what word you want to use. You know, there's been a lot of hard lessons I had to learn. I did not have a mentor along the way. I had a mentor, so to speak, but not in the markets. So I had a mentor in business, which thank God I did because it allowed me to acquire enough capital to get back into the markets. Um, but as far as trading and, and learning the ropes, um, no, it was all, it was all self-taught. Um, and my, like I said, I, I, I think there's advantage and disadvantage that you do you do get some hard lessons along the way, um, which 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 help you, but it, it's painful when you're going through it. Yeah. So you're obviously independently trading today. Uh, do you, are you still involved with any of uh, the companies that you started earlier on? Well, I sold. We sold the uh, the employment agent, the executive staffing agency, um, to a national firm because I wanted to focus more on, you know, building a portfolio and, and trading. And, you know, my, my goal was to um, start a family office hedge fund. And I did raise the capital to do that. Uh, and that was the plan. Unfortunately, I had some personal family issues come up, which, which prevented me from doing that. But um, I still right now trade, um, you know, a fairly nice sized portfolio for myself. But yeah, right now I've divested myself of most of my other business opportunities. I do have some small, um, you know, real estate ventures and things like that, but nothing that would actively take time away from me, um, you know, watching the markets. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's let's dig into your actual trading method. Like when someone asks you today, how do you how do you trade? What's your approach? How would you describe it? Uh, that's a great question. 
I would describe it as it's a hybrid. It's it's fundamentals with momentum, sentiment, and instinct. Um, I can tell you that um, anybody who follows me on Twitter um, and is familiar with the way I um, invest and trade will know that I, I, I will never use a chart. Um, I've never used a chart in my life. Um, I've actually <laughs> I've actually terminated people that work for me that use charts because um, I just think that, that, that they're not advantageous. So, um, you know, I, I look at fundamental uh, momentum, sentiment. And, and just the basic instinct about what's going on in the markets to, to, to make a decision. Okay. Now, obviously, I want to pick up on that point about charts and get you to expand a little more on that. Um, and, you know, I, I know from scrolling through your Twitter feed how vocal you are about <laughs> uh, using charts uh, or not using charts, I should say. Um, why are they not advantageous? Well, let me get this straight. I mean, I'm not, I think that if you use charts and you're successful, then that's what you should use. I would never tell anybody not to use something that is successful for them. Uh, you know, everybody to each his own. For me, though, and the way I, I see the investment community, I, I just think it's fool's gold and, and sort of like a crutch. Um, when, when you could take a chart and fit basically any narrative that you want to that chart, to be agreeable to your investment thesis, uh, uh, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, like fool's gold. You, you really can't uh, buy into it. I mean, I, I can't buy into it. Um, you know, anything that doesn't take fundamentals or events in, into account is something I just can't get behind. Um, you know, a, a chart is, and then, you know, one of the other things with charts is, when you see a lot of these folks on here, and, and, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm in the strict minority. They're, you know, 99% of my Twitter feed for the people that trade and invest are, are people that use charts or technical analysis, and that's fine. I'm just trying to, you know, show people that there is other ways um, to, to do it and be successful. Um, you know, when you're, when you're using a chart, most of the time you're waiting for a trigger point to, to allow you to get into a trade or a trigger point that gives you an exit. And I have found that by the time those triggers hit for those guys, I've already either been in and out of the trade and done very well, um, or they have missed the best entry for the trade because they were waiting for a trigger. So charts aren't predictive. They just, they, they tell you what's happened. But for me, you know, I had somebody, you know, tell me a chart that said, I looked at the chart that happened last week and I was like, you look at the chart that happened last week. I want to try to figure out where the chart is going to be next week. So for me, it's just not something I find useful. And I think that it really takes away from traders being able to develop an instinct and a conviction in the market when they're so self-reliant on a chart. Okay. Okay. So we're obviously going to go into this much more. Um, do you think this would be different if you hadn't come from an accounting background? Huh, that's a good question. Do I think it would be different if I haven't come from an accounting background? Um, I, I don't know. I, I just don't think that uh, now, you know, the, uh, and I think a lot, you know, some of them might have to do with personality or, you know, the, the way our minds work. I, I just don't think that using charts to actively manage, especially in, in options, if you're going to trade options, charts are, you might as well put them in the shredder. Um, you know, stock may be one thing, you, but to trade options using a chart is is almost, it, it, it's impossible. Um, but I, I don't know if I would, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say if, if having an accounting background um, has been um, something that made me look at, at charts as disadvantageous. Um, I just think that, uh, it doesn't allow a trader to commit to something he may believe in it um, because the chart's not giving him confirmation of that, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. And just to, so we really understand where you're coming from here, what time frames are you trading? Like what's your average hold time? That's a great question. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it varies. Uh, there are there are stocks and options I hold intraday. I'll buy in the morning, sell in the night, and there's long term options that I will 
Now, let me clear. I have a I have an options portfolio, which I consider short term. I have a stock portfolio, which I consider longer term. Uh, in the in the options portfolio, I rarely hold anything longer than six months. It could be as short as a 10-minute a trade, rarely longer than six months, um, except in a few cases. And in the stock portfolio, it's really long-term, uh, mid-to-long-term uh, holds. So, uh, you know, I, I definitely have a split um, when it comes to investing. The, I, I look to the options portfolio to really deliver the beta um, to, to the overall returns. Okay. So I guess my motive for asking that question was just to try and find out if you were trading intraday um, or if you were a longer-term trader. Uh, maybe fundamentals are more important for longer-term trading, but you use, uh, regardless, you don't use charts for any time frame you're trading. No, I don't use any charts. for. I, I've never looked at a chart in my whole life. I mean, I've looked at them. I've never used them for any kind of analysis or definitely never used them for a um, decision-making uh, purpose. Okay. And so the way you described charts and, you know, technical analysis is you can kind of fit whatever narrative you want to them. And I, I totally understand what you're saying there. Uh, but is the same not, uh, could the same not be said about fundamentals as well? Well, I mean, think about it though. I mean, you, you have a chart in front of you and, and, and they come up with these anagrams and, and these, um, you know, cup and handle, um, you know, head and shoulders and, and different patterns that fit. But with fundamentals, you're dealing with changes in the business that are either good or bad or changes in the specifics of a company that are either, you know, good or bad. It's really it's hard to take something that's we're restating our financial statements and turn that into a positive. Like you look at a company that just recently like pain celestial. You know, they came out after the market and said, "Uh oh, we have to relook at our financial statements. There's really not a good way to look at that. The stock went down 25 percent after hours. And you, no matter what spin you want to put on that, it, it was a it was a bad news. Um, so I think when it comes to fundamentals, uh, you know, if there's if there's something that's up for interpretation, like, you know, Apple's coming out with a new iPhone tomorrow. You know, if you want to say you, you can interpret that as a catalyst for the company and say the stock's going up or say that they aren't innovative anymore and the stock is dead money. Yes, that kind of fundamental you can. But when it comes to del deltas in the business, the direct changes, whether it's specific to the company or an industry, you know, whether there's, you know, Chinese tariffs on steel or, you know, oil with the Middle East. I mean, those to me, those things are more direct investable events. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. What gives you actual conviction to execute a trade? Like what's your decision-making process? Maybe if you could just sort of walk us through that, just give us an example maybe. Yeah, I mean, so it's funny because a lot of the folks on Twitter, like, what do you look at on your screen? And do you, you don't have charts, you don't have anything. What do you look at? And I, I have, you know, my watch list on my left, which is uh, probably 100, 125 stocks. 
and I have an option matrix on my right, which shows me, you know, options that are, you know, trading, you know, heavy or, you know, there's a lot of open interest and, you know, volume. And then I look at level twos and volumes. Now, I don't use charts, but I will use volumes when it comes to specific stocks. And I think volume tells a big tale. So the one thing I look for, you know, there's 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 a few things initially that I look for um, in the morning. If there's a big initial move on a stock. So let's say a stock came out with a bad earnings report and it's down 20%. Immediately it goes on my radar and I have a decision point. Is this the bottom? Do I want to buy it here or is there more left? And then I'll go through. Um, I'll look at the volumes. I'll look at the options trading. I'll look at the the encompassing you know uh, earnings report and and do my own decision making whether you know the market's overreacting or or is it something that is 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 contained and is isn't really company specific. Um, and, and then I'll make a decision point based on that. So I'll look at things like sentiment. You know, I love negative sentiment on a stock. Um, it's, it's definitely puts it, you know, these are the things that put things on my radar. Sentiment, momentum, um, you know, if, if there's strong momentum either way, uh, you know, you've had so many stocks that have just been getting crushed, like Chipotle, you know, recently has gotten crushed. Um, you know, stocks like that, uh, you know, I could take you through a couple of trades I had and what brought me to make, you know, some decisions points um, where, uh, you know, people told me I was crazy. But those are the things that I, I kind of try to point out when I'm looking um, first thing in the morning. Okay, yeah, maybe if you could just walk us through a, a recent trade um, just so we can sort of put it into context. Uh Sure. So um, one that, you know, I, I try to convey to, to folks that ask me is 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 Freeport MacMoran. So this was a stock that got, you know, in the beginning of the year, January, February, you know, end of the year, December, absolutely got obliterated. Um, the stock was getting crushed. The debt load was uh, enormous. It didn't look like they would, you know, the debt service, they started actually being, you know, there was a going concern issue here, whether the company would have to, be, you know, be out of business. And when I looked at what they were doing um, in comparison to what, you know, the street was clamoring, you know, the fire in the movie theater, you know, they were they were divesting assets and, and, and the price of copper was actually increasing. So, you know, they, the most of their money's made in, in, in copper and gold and, and the price of copper was actually stabilizing and actually and, and, and improving. So with the divestiture is bringing the debt down uh, and, and the price of the assets that they actually sell moderating, I, I just didn't see how this thing was getting to zero. And, you know, the stock was cratering. So I went in. And I bought um, 125,000 shares at just under four. I think it was 398, 399. And when I did it, and I and I tweet out all my trades. I'm a big believer in, in full disclosure. I'm not for the tweeting out a trade or, or speaking to people after you've made it. You know, after it's been a great success, and saying, oh, by the way, I bought X, Y, Z. It's up a million percent. So I did it as it was ha happening. And I got to tell you, I got slaughtered for it. And, you know, at the time, people were, you know, in the, metal, the metal space, the oil space was getting, the commodity space was getting destroyed. Uh, but, but you saw, to me, the fundamentals of what was happening with the business and the company did not substantiate a company that was going to zero. So I stepped in, I bought, and, you know, things things leveled out and, you know, I got out of the trade somewhere around 12, 1250, um, you know, sometime. I don't remember the exact dates. I, I think it was, you know, March, April, May, sometime in that time frame um, after a huge rally. And, and that's the kind of things that I look for when I when I get to a trade. Uh, another one, you know, was was Wynn Resorts. You know, it got annihilated you know this is a stock that used to be 200 and something dollar stock and it was down in the mid 50s and i was looking at the things you know that were coming up you know you had the opening of a new resort that was coming it looked like you know the earnings in the macau area were starting to trough and i said you know it looks like we're seeing trough earnings 
in in you know the fourth quarter, first quarter, you know I don't see a lot of downside here. Um, but you know everybody thought you know with the whole mess in China and you know the regulatory crackdown on on fraud and and limiting their tables and things like that was going to be a big issue. So I stepped in and made a, a, a very big position and win it at, at mid fifties, and then it, it ran up to a hundred. It's a it's a position I still hold one of my largest at this point, but you know, through, through an option play. Um, so, so those are the, that's the kind of thing I look for when I'm going to step in uh, as in, in size into a position to, to make a trade. Right. And when you buy into like, just for these couple examples here, when you buy into these, when you take a position in for these two examples, are you expecting to take some heat on those, especially because, as you said, the price is already moving down, uh, but you think that it's going to rally in the near future. When you buy into that, are you expecting to take some heat on that and then it's likely to go down even further? Or are you anticipating that where you're getting in is going to be the actual bottom? No, 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 no. I, you know, and I think that's, you know, and we could discuss this. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that, you know, newer traders or even some intermediate traders make is thinking you're going to buy the absolute bottom and, you know, sell it at the absolute top. I, I expect, and here, and one of the big thing is, is you have to set your market band for what you're willing to accept on a downside and what you will sell at the upside before you enter the trade. You, it's not something you could set up once you enter the trade because then you're emotionally involved in it uh, and, you, and, and you tend not to see things as clearly. When I enter a trade of that nature, I always have my parameters set up before I enter it uh, because I, I think it's important to, to have some control of, of, of your enter and exit strategies before you get into it because then it, you know, things can spin out of control uh, and you could end up uh, taking, a, taking a real beating. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point you bring up. Now, what are some of the, the news events or fundamental changes that get you most interested in a company? Like, are there a couple things that really draw in your attention? Yes. Well, first things are things I deem transitory events. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, I can give you a perfect example, um, the Ebola scare. When the Ebola scare came out, airlines got clobbered, um, some down 20 to 30%. I went in and I bought American Airlines hand over fist as much as I could, because when you see events like that, that I consider temporary events that will pass through and won't have a long term fundamental impact on the business. But the market, the algorithms, the HFTs see it and all they're doing is hitting the sell button. That's the first thing I do. I go in and I buy as fast as I can, as much as I can. Um, you know, it's events like that um, that really uh, uh, give me uh, the impetus to get involved in something. I, I love events that that I that I see like that when when uh, I know it won't be a lasting effect on the stock. Um, now, just going back to what you said at the very beginning, uh, you know, going for companies that you understand, uh, going for companies that you that you maybe like on a personal level. How much do you really care about the companies that you're trading? Like, are you going to avoid a trading opportunity just because you don't know uh, the ins and outs of that company or you've never used their product? Are you going to avoid a company like that, um, even though you might see something standing out in their books? Like, can you just tell us a little bit more about how you choose uh, what companies you're going to uh, trade? Well, yeah, I mean, it really depends what we're talking. If we're talking about buying the stock for a long-term investment, uh, I tend not to get involved in companies that I don't really understand. Like, like, for instance, I'll never directly invest in a Chinese company, whether it's Alibaba or Baidu. I won't directly invest in it because I don't understand the way the government works over there. And at any time, they could just clamp down, shut down a business, they don't have the same accounting principles, even though they're audited by American firms. Uh, I just, if it's something I don't want, you know, if it's something you're going to wake up in the morning and they're going to be like counting scandal and it's not really going to surprise you, then I don't want to be involved in it. So I will never directly invest in, you know, long-term 
in a stock like Alibaba or Baidu or, you know, any of those companies, you know, that have a direct China link. So now will that mean I won't trade in and out of them if there's an event? Um, no, I would. But it would be short term trade and it would be based strictly on, um, you know, some of the things I see, whether it's an event, severe downward momentum. But it would be a, a quick trade and something I wouldn't hold long term. Um, so when it comes to, you know, companies that I like, I mean, just because I like a company doesn't mean I'm always going to invest in it. But it, if I understand it and, and the business they're doing, you know, then it's something that um, I would invest in maybe long term if I saw the growth prospects. Um, but, you know, as far as options go, it's fair game. Any company that pops into my radar um, that, that might set something off, um, I'll, I'll trade around the position. Uh, you know, there's no there's no limits there. But I yes, there's definitely when it comes to a mid to long term hold, I would never invest in, in a company. I didn't understand the dynamics of the either the government, the business they do or or the markets they're in. Right, right. OK, so I guess a good question to ask you would be once you have an outlook, how do you actually time that trade to actually get into the market? Like how do you actually get exposure? How do you time that? Do you, uh, are you all in and all out or are you, do you layer into a trade? Um, yeah, speak to us a little bit about your, your actual timing. Well, yeah, so the timing, timing for me is once I decide to enter a trade, um, the timing, the, the, the level of intensity that I enter the trade is based on my own conviction that I have for it. So, for instance, we could take one this week. Um, you know, Apple pulled back a little bit. And I saw that, you know, going into the event, Apple usually runs up and then sells off. And I just I took a fairly nice sized option position right off the bat. I entered 100 percent of the position, uh, the stock, you know, and I had my price target set up mentally where I wanted to get out. And as the week went on and the stock went up, I layered out of that position. So I sold half. Um, then I sold another quarter in the morning today. And then I sold the final piece of it this afternoon and I rolled into uh, 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 a more leveraged, smaller position for Apple. Um, so, you know, it depends what I'm waiting for as well. If I'm waiting for a specific event, um, that's pretty much an all or nothing binary event. Uh, I'll probably go a hundred percent into the position. If it's something I'm waiting to see play out, then I'll, I'll layer in slowly, but I'll always have my exit points. You always have to have your strategy before you enter these trades, no matter you know whether you're layering in, going at 100%, um, and, and and your exit points as well. Because like I said, once once you're in the trade, uh, the markets can get a bit hairy, and then and then you know everything kind of goes uh, you know haywire. So um, you know based on whether there's an event coming and my level of conviction is how heavy I layer into the trade um, off the on the outset. Okay, and just while we're still talking about entries here, what do you do when price action doesn't support your views or your outlook? And that's that's a great question. I just covered this in in one of my periscopes with Win, where I entered the trade post earnings and at like 90, 91, 92, and it ran all the way up back to to one hundred, and I added in some more, and then the stock is pulled back all the way to the low 90s. And I, and, I, and I said, you know, this is my most difficult decision in my personal trading realm is when the price action doesn't match the conviction that I have for the trade. And then you have to make, then you're at a decision point. Um, and, and you really need to d decide whether you were just wrong and, you know, hubris will kill you. You know, um, you know, I, you know, I say the 10 trading rules are don't be arrogant, one through 10, because that will kill you. So you, you, you're just wrong and it's time to exit. Or can you set up another strategy around the new price action if it's a trade you still want to be into? So the, the beauty with options is it's not just a buy or sell decision. There are other things you can implement in the options market that allow you to stay in a trade but will protect you to the downside while also allowing you to participate in the upside, which which is good. So, you know, that is my most difficult challenge is when the price action doesn't meet my conviction, 
I, I have to actually, that's my, that's my biggest decision point yeah, when, yeah. when a trade comes. Okay. And so, you know, you, you've talked about both here, stocks and options. How do you decide when to trade which, whether you're going to trade stocks or whether you're going to trade options on any given position? What's that come down sure. to? Uh, um, two, two decisions. It's two, it's two points. Length of time and risk of capital. So, um, if I, so if I want to get involved in a, in a company and I'm really not sure what the timeline is going to be for that company for what I see happening, then I get involved in the stock. Because I'm not sure. With, with, with options, you have, a, very, you have a, a decay. It's a time value of money. So they decay over time. So you're going to even, you know, if the stock stays flat, you're going to, you're going to lose money. So time um, is a very critical factor. If it's something I'm not sure about, I'll just buy the stock until I feel more comfortable with the timeline of what I'm expecting. Um, you know, there's certain events on the calendar, like earnings, you know, a new iPhone event, um, things like that, that you can plan around. But if you just like a company and you just you like the way it's been acting. You like the things they're doing. For instance, NVIDIA. I got involved in NVIDIA um, at 44, and I really wasn't sure, you know, what the trajectory of the, of the company was going to be. I just know that I liked the things they were doing, the, 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 the sectors they were getting involved in. So rather than buy the options, I just bought a big block of stock, and I sat with it. And it ran up to, to 60, 60, low 60s, and I got out, um, you know, which – Hindsight, if I would have been in the options, I would have made five, ten times more. But I really wasn't sure of the trajectory. And that comes back to the, the risk of capital. How much capital am I willing to risk in this trade? Um, you know, options give you very limited risk. You know, as far as what you're willing to put up, that's all you can, you know, you, you, know, you, put, you buy X amount of an option, you know, that's your maximum risk. But with a stock, you don't know where it can go. Um, you know, if you buy $10,000 of an option and it goes to zero, you lose 10,000. You know, if you buy 10,000 shares of a stock and it drops 20 points, you could lose 20 times that. So, um, you know, what I'm willing to risk and the timeline I have for the company are the two factors I use to decide options versus equity. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and while we're talking about options here, is there anything... Is there, are there some things that are often not discussed about options, but you feel are important to know? Like, is there any, anything you, you'd like to tell listeners about options, which you think are really important to know, which are probably less discussed? Yeah. I mean, options are, you know, very, the, the pe- you know, when people really start learning about options, they think it's a get rich quick kind of way to, to make a lot of money fast. And if you get it right, yes. But, you know, when you're dealing with options, you have to get a lot of things right that you have to get with stocks, but you have to do it in a limited time. You have to get direction. You have to get, you know, um, velocity. Uh, and you have to price it right. So the op, the, the, Anybody who gets involved in options, I say, start very small. Don't think, you know, you read about, you know, you see on CNBC, you see a lot of the option guys talking about, you know, how you can really use leverage to make a lot more money. But what they don't tell you is, you know, 80% of out of the money options expire worthless. So, you know, it's, it's a dangerous game if you're not careful and you don't understand what you're doing. You know, there's a lot of factors involved that you have to be more right than if you bought a stock. You actually have to be more right on things at buying an option than you do a stock. Um, and, and it can really eat up, eat through your capital very quickly um, if, you, if, you don't, uh, if you don't think it through because there's, there's no recovery time, so to speak. You know, if you buy options before an earnings announcement and they miss, your options are zero and they ain't coming back from that. Whereas if you buy a stock and they miss, yeah, you're going to take a big hit. But you can now hold the stock ad infinitum, you know, for two years and it may come back. So, you know, it's the risk reward balance that, you know, folks need to, to get a handle on before they get involved. It, it can really destroy a portfolio. Yeah. Okay. And one thing I know you're really big on 
is actually hedging your positions. Uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about how you go about hedging positions and when you hedge, why you decide to hedge, that sort of thing? Sure. So hedging, um, now, now you, now you got to understand that unless you're in cash, hedging is considered to me a position. It's, it's actually considered a trading position. So, um, and, and you really need to understand that when, when, you, when you do it. So that being said, I rarely hedge my stock portfolio. Like I said, that's a very long term uh, in duration. And it's something that, uh, you know, a, a lot of the companies in there are, are old school tech and dividend payers. So they're not really things that I would look to hedge. The options portfolio is a completely different story. And I think it's something that, you know, needs to be discussed. I've always said that for every $16,000 in long calls or long um, leveraged options, you should have $1,000 uh, hedged against it, whether it's in, you know, direct market puts or covered rights or things of that nature to, to, to pull some capital off the table. Uh, I don't, when you get to a point in the market like this where you're near all time highs and you got a lot of events coming that can be very sketchy when the markets come, like, like the election, um, you have the Fed decisions coming through. Uh, there's no need, there's no need to not have protection on there in case you get a big swoop down, um, which is what I do. I bought some SPX puts against my whole options portfolio. So if we get a big dip, at least, you know, you have some protection. Now, a hedge is not supposed to offset 100% of your losses, but it's supposed to mitigate uh, some of the risk that you're taking. And when I do that is when I feel there's a lull and lack of a catalyst in a market. So it opens up a vacuum for where things could get sucked down. It doesn't seem that way. It seems that all we have are buy the dips. But, um, you know, uh, it's definitely, I always try to keep some sort of hedge on my options book. Right. And that ratio you talked about there of, uh, one to 16, is that, is there any kind of science behind that? Or is that just something that you feel comfortable with? The science, I mean, I, it's something I've used for like 25 years. So I, I've, I've tried to find a balance where, you know, you don't want to put on a hedge too big that it, it actually you know, my, my own theory is that if the market drops and your hedge actually puts your portfolio in the green, then you're overhedged. And if if it doesn't materially skew any losses, then you're underhedged. So it's just a balance that I have found over time, given the different swings in the market that I'm comfortable with, that has worked as far as risk of capital versus the hedge. Um, what what seems to balance out. Um, you know, and not really overtake the the the, long, the strategy that you have. If your strategy is long, then you don't want a hedge that's going to be overbearing on that strategy. And that's just a, you know a numbers that I've you know used through the years that have seemed to give a good give and take balance to to that. Okay, and for options traders who are hedging, like, does this become? Um an advantage once your account or once your position sizes are over, you know, X amount of value. Like if you're trading a small account, let's say $10,000, is there any benefit of hedging your positions or does it become more beneficial when you're trading, let's say $100,000 and upwards? I would say that, well, if you're dealing with an account that's fairly, you know, on a smaller scale, I would say that your position should be smaller and that the hedging benefit is diminished. Yes. I mean, if you're going to enter a $2,000 trade, um, I would say that the benefits to the hedging that position are diminished. Um, but I, there, are other, there are other ways to do it. Um, you can enter a call spread. You can, you know, sell upside calls or, you know, um, you know sell puts. There's other ways to hedge without directly going against your portfolio. And yes, in, in a smaller size portfolio, um, I would make my positions a lot smaller um, and probably not hedge them out of the gate. Now, if those positions run higher and you're getting you know, 20, 30, 40% return on that, you're either gonna take down that position or I would hedge that 
that that strike absolutely okay but i would do that one i would only do that once um you know i've had some gains uh in in the position very good okay now i guess the last part of it is the exit so you know this is something you said earlier is you need to know your exit point before you even get into a trade which is an excellent point how do you determine your exit targets so when you're getting into a trade, you have to think about a couple things. One, why are you getting into the trade? What do you expect from the movement? And where are you buying it? So when I say that is when I'm forming a trade in an options trade and we'll, we'll go through, you know, I'll take you through the, the Apple trade. <clears throat> uh, the stock was in the 105-ish area, I believe, and I wanted to get involved. So... I bought, I, I looked at something that was slightly out of the money um, with a 106 calls. And I said, all right, now what do I expect to happen before the event? And what price point would I be comfortable with getting out and, and, and taking my gain? So I, I looked at some of the options, you know, some of the options that were played. And, you know, there was some heavy movement in the 110 calls. So I pretty, I, I said it. I said, if, if I'm buying these calls at, I'm trying to remember what I, where I bought them. Let's say for argument's sake, I bought them at a dollar. If these options get to $2, I'm out. You know, you set that prior to going into the trade. If I double my options, I'm out. Now that's just, you know, a round number and just so easy to use, but it might not, you know, I might say if I get to a dollar 40, I'm out a 40% return. So the, the parameters are mostly based on the option price, not so much the price of the stock. Obviously, the stock's going to have to move a little bit more um, to get the options to move, um, you know, higher. It's not always a one-to-one rate. It's it's not a one-to-one ratio. Um, but you have to be comfortable with what, and and that's the big, you know, one of the other things with new traders is, you know, they 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 fear of buying too soon or selling too early. Um, but if you set your markers up early before the trade, then, you know, you just don't look back. You execute and move forward. Executing what you set up for yourself is very, very critical. And are you always, um, is there ever, ever a point where you may just take partial profits at your target and leave some on? If you, like, if you feel as though there's, there's a chance that the price may move uh, more in your favor. Um, are you ever going to leave part of a position on? Yes. I mean, I, I call that the free roll. So basically, um, I'll take off the majority of a position, uh, say 80% and I'll hold 20%. And basically I'm, you know, playing with house money at that point and see if it can run a little more, but you're playing with, you know, you're, you're, you're at a much smaller size and a much smaller risk. Um, but you still leave yourself some upside. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, let's say you buy a company at 100 and it runs to 10, you know, 109. You could sell out of the money calls against that position and take off a lot of the money and still give yourself three, four, five points of upside to participate. So, yeah, there are times if I still feel it, it hit my trigger point, but I will always take money off the table when it hits those points. I'm never going to say and let it just blow through there and say, all right, we're just going to let it go. When you, you have to be strict with that because too many times, especially in options, the you know, market gets fluid and the market gets fast and you could what you could quickly go from a nice gain to, to a severe loss. So yeah, there are times I will let it run, but it will be a much more finite amount of money um, and, and a much smaller risk. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Absolutely. Now just a, a couple I guess you could call them general questions that I'd like to ask you. Sure. What do you think it is specifically that's made you a successful trader? Like what does it boil down to? Is it your persistence? Is it the time you've dedicated to this? Is it your strategy? Like is there anything you think that's uh, really contributed to your success as a trader? Uh, Yeah, I mean I think the the biggest – Things that contributed to my success are, you know, getting up off the mat, you know, and, and, you know, getting through a bad trade or a losing trade or taking a loss, you know, that is very important. And getting through that mentally is, is, is key. Being able to 
um, figure out what went wrong and to, to, to put your hat back in the ring is, is key uh, to, to being to my success and, and the conviction. I think, you know, there's so much news out there and so many people with so many differing opinions that you have to have conviction in what you're buying and what you're doing. And don't let a pundit or some guy on TV or some Twitter, uh, you know, quote unquote expert tell you that that's a bad trade or you're, you're not, you know, you, you did it too soon or you, there's there's better alternatives. You know, having conviction in what you're doing and being able to see it through is very important because, you know, as I've always said, playing with scared money, you've already lost. If you step, you know, if you step into a casino and you're afraid to death to lose at the blackjack table, you've already lost before you've sat down because you're not going to play the way you need to play to win. Same thing with the markets. When you enter a trade, you have to have conviction that you are making a good trade and see it through and you know, deal with this small fluctuations, but being able to follow through with why you got in. You got into the trade for a reason. Don't let other people force you out. Um, you know, and I think that is the two things that allowed me to be successful and, and, and continue to, uh, to, to this day. Mm-hmm. So taking hits and being able to keep moving forward and conviction in your actions. I like that. Um, what are the biggest mistakes you see developing traders make? I know you, you're very active on Twitter and you engage with a lot of your followers. What are some of the biggest mistakes that stand out to you, you that you see developing traders make? Uh, you know, a lot of things, you know, um, fear, you know, uh, fear of losing, fear of, you know, ridicule, fear of getting in a trade at the wrong level that, you know, that they might have bought it too soon or sold it too early or late, um, you know, and, and not believing in what they're trying to accomplish. You know, that they, they seek advice from so many people, um, which is fine. But at the end of the day, you have to make your own decisions. And when you finally do decide to make that decision, uh, you know, I'm hoping that there's a basis for it and, and, and you have a list of reasons of why you're doing it, whether it's a chart or you just you, you feel good about what a company's doing. Uh, being able to follow through uh, is is something that um, I find that a lot of the folks are having trouble with. And, you know. Side, right sizing the position is, a, is another issue that I, I see a lot of the traders, you know, you, you can have big wins with, you know, less capital invested, but you could have big, you can only have big, big losses if you take big, big positions. So, you know, being able to right size the amount of capital they're willing to risk on a trade, um, given what they're trying to accomplish is is something I, I think that uh, you know they 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 could definitely work on um, to be better and unfortunately you know uh, it might just come through making their own mistakes and learning but um, you know I try to tell all the folks on Twitter you know believe in what you do um, believe in yourself you know follow through you, you know don't let myself or anybody else tell you that you know your trade's no good you know, if you think it's something that's worthwhile, then, then see it through. But I, I think that fear, conviction and position sizing um, are, are three of the things I, I, I find that, um, you know, are, are a bit of weakness um, on the trading end. Yeah, that's a really great answer to take us out, Craig. Where is the best place listeners can go to find out more about you? I'm on Twitter, Craig Scott, 31. You know, that's probably the best place. I mean, I'm very, you know, I try to be as active on Twitter, whether the the followers, big or small, I, I, I try to answer every question. I, I tell them there's no stupid questions. Just come at me. I'll try to give you the best information I can and direct you, um, you know, where to go. Um, and, you know, they have my, you know, if they, they DM me, they, I give them my email that, you know, I'll give them my phone number. Uh, if they want to, you know, bounce some ideas off me, um, I'm, I'm always open to do that. And, you know, I, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I try to help them as, as much as possible. I try to give back as much as possible. That's awesome. And it's very cool that, you, that you're willing to help out like that. So uh, that, that's very cool of you. Um, and you're also on Periscope as well, right? Yeah, I do a lot. Of, I try to do um, a weekly Periscope on Thursdays. I'm calling it Trader Thursdays where, you know, we'll take the events of the week or 
um, things that might be coming up and discuss them. And I'll give my viewpoints. And then I try to take questions from as you know, um, as you know, lately we've been getting some very good viewership on the Periscope. So I take as many questions as possible. Um, you know, I try to answer them all. If not, then they, you know, they shoot me a tweet or a DM. But yeah, I try to do a Periscope every Thursday morning before the market opens. Um, it varies in time, some 8.15, 20, But I usually, I'll give notice about when I'm going to do it. Um, and I'll also put the topics that are going to be up for discussion. And, you know, if there's any questions, um, you know, I try to field them and, and, and get to as much as possible. But uh, they've been very, the, the Periscopes have been very good. I've gotten some good feedback. So it, it, it seems to be working out well with that. Yeah, no, they're excellent. I watched a couple uh, before we jumped on this call. Um, how can someone follow you on Periscope? Do they need your uh, handle or do they go to a link or what's the deal? No, yeah. I mean, I think it, the Periscope, my Periscope handle is the same as my Twitter handle, Craig Scott 31 So if they just go to Periscope, you know, and just type in Craig Scott 31 they'll see me and they can, they can follow me. Or, you know, they, they can follow me on Twitter and uh, they'll see you know, when my periscopes go live, you know, that they'll say, you know, the Twitter will say, you know, Craig's doing a periscope and they can uh, definitely, definitely, definitely hop on board. It would be, you know, great. And, you know, whatever they, you know, whatever they needed to uh, help with, I'd be, you know, glad to try to help them out. Awesome. No, that's really cool. Well, Craig, I've got to say, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for doing this. Oh, it's been great. This has been great. This has been great. I, I enjoyed myself very much. And, uh, you know, if you ever you know, need anything, be, be sure to reach out and I'll be glad to get back to you. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.